Sounders, keep your shades anchored and where they belong during life's greatest feats. Head to soundergoods.com and use promo code KTTC to get 10% off and free shipping with any order. You're listening to the Keef to the City podcast. Here's Neil Keith. All right, with the Red Sox in town to play the Yankees here as we head into the home stretch of the final two months of the season. Uh, joining me today to talk Boston sports and some Red Sox is Dan Shaughnessy, the columnist from the Boston Globe, uh, also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Francona, The Red Sox Years. Dan, how's it going today? Uh, going very well, thank you. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I appreciate you giving me the time. Uh, it's sort of weird to have yet another season here uh, in August where the Yankees and Red Sox are meeting, and what should have been sort of a high-anticipation series has become uh, another letdown with one team doing well, the other team doing poorly. And, and it seems like you know a decade ago when, when they were playing in the playoffs back-to-back years, it seemed like that would sort of go on forever, and now it's been uh, 11 years, and uh, it'll be 12 next year now that the Red Sox aren't going to the postseason that these teams haven't met uh, it sort of has let down the rivalry. It just doesn't feel the same that way it used to. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, uh, they met in the playoffs for the first time in 99. Of course, it was impossible to happen until you had wild card situations. And so all those years before, it was not there. And then again, obviously, 2003, 2004, just these epic uh, seven-game clashes that were never forgotten. Books were written and movies were made, all that stuff. So, yeah, there's a notion that uh, they do this every year, and it's always Red Sox-Yankees, and aren't we sick of them? And then you point out, here we are, you know, 11 years later, they haven't met, they're not going to meet again, and the Red Sox really are, are in a, a big um, slump here. Uh, this, is, uh, this will be the s- sixth time in the last seven years that they don't win a playoff game. I mean, the only, you know, obviously they won the World Series in 13, but their pattern of, of play is... is Really, what we're seeing this year is more the norm than the exception, and it's time for them to face that. Yeah, and I feel like when you look at the two teams and the way they've gone, I mean, you've been around both of them for what seems like forever now, and I always uh, think about, uh, yes, they'll show the Yankees classics from the uh, 77 World Series after the Yankees win Game 6, and you're standing right there behind Reggie Jackson as he gets interviewed, and uh, you know, you've been around these teams now for you know almost 40 years and, and seen the highs and the lows and seen some of the uh, seminal mo- moments in the history, and uh, you know, going to school up in Boston I, uh, for college, I was a freshman in 04 when everything crumbled for the Yankees and um, that's sort of when I started reading you becoming a fan and, and you know getting with the curse of the Bambino and all of that and uh, now it's you know the Red Sox have won three times in the last 10 years 11 years and the Yankees have struggled really since 2000 with the exception of 09 but uh, you know what do you make of the rivalry at this point and do you think you know we'll see it ever be what it was 10 years ago or even at, at the point in the 70s and what it was? Well it should be I mean they're both still top five payroll teams and uh, they have the resources and they have, you know, the, the Northeast Corridor, the division, the fan base, uh, a lot of the ingredients. Uh, the Sox expect to be there. They were picked to win the division this year by most people, and the Yankees look like they're going to win the division. So you could say there's, you know, there's still activity in this thing, and when they met in April at that 19-inning game, and, and it looked like the Red Sox were going to be the good team and the Yankees were going to be the last-place team, and here we are four months later, and it's just the opposite. So... um it, you know they, they're going to play 19 times. It, it doesn't go away. It's just I'm not sure we'll ever replicate what it got to in 03 and 04. And, and again, I, I was there in '78 when the whole thing was going down with the the 14 game lead, Bucky Dent, great comeback, and all that. And 
Yes, that is me on the video. Thanks for noticing with Reggie, uh, 1977, 24-year-old me looking like poor Gump in the background there and still getting asked about that almost 40 years later. So it's been uh, it's been great to watch the, the ups and downs of both franchises through the years, and, and I hope there's more. Well, they, I know you have the impossible dream season up in Boston, but I always uh, sort of relate that to what happened in 2013. And for this team to have another last-place finish uh, on its hands and to have that one championship sort of in the middle of it, um, you know, is it a fluke season at this point and, and the job Ben Sherrington's done since he took over for Theo? And I feel like with three last-place finishes surrounded by one championship season where everything, every single player had to play to the, to the way they expected, uh, they re- stayed relatively healthy, um, it was just like one massive parlay they basically basically hit to win that World Series. So when you look at the job Charrington's done now in the absence of Theo and, and the managerial jobs that have been done by Farrell and Valentine in the absence of Francona, uh, do you think that season can be just chalked up as a fluke with what's going on around it? I do. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's weird. It's, it's almost like it's holding them back. Um, and, you know, you always want to win the championship. That's the goal, right? And they did that. But at the same time, it, it kind of uh, allowed them, enabled them to think they're better than they are, that they're smarter than they are, that they figured out the formula, and really, it's this outlier season going back to the collapse of 2011. They're like an aggregate, I don't know, 50 or 60 games under 500, including a world championship, and that's not a formula for sustained success. Uh, they don't have that. They get a lot of love from national media and local media. You know, uh, Keith Law was just saying last week, the best farm system in baseball. Their top two farm outlets are 50 games under 500. Now, we know that you know winning games in the minors is not the point. It's about player development, but... I don't know, 50 games under 500 is, doesn't tell me there's, there's, they're loaded down there. And uh, so, yeah, all, all the good players are in single A, I guess. So we, we have that. Baseball America had them ranked second in, of all 30 teams, farm system. Uh, where are the players? And they, it, it, it makes them hold on to guys too long. They did this with Ryan LaVarnway and Michael Bowden. And just guys, they get exposed. Uh, and they come up, we see them, Bernardo, they're not as good, and then they, they can't get as much for them. So it might be time to open open the eyes and maybe it's okay to part with Blake Swihart or or Henry Owens or one of their coveted guys. They used to do that when they got Pedro. They they gave up Carl Pavano. You know when uh, um, as recently as was traded to bring in Josh Beckett. I mean sometimes you got to give up a, a blue chip prospect to get somebody who can help you. Now they're reluctant to do that. That's also holding them back. I was worried last week around the deadline when rumors started to surface that they, they might be involved in some crazy three-team uh, three trade with the Cubs and the Padres, and then all I could think about was another team bailing them out like the Dodgers did a few years ago, but uh, luckily it looks like they'll probably be stuck with Pablo and Hanley for, for the length of their contracts. Yeah, I mean, really, those guys are going to be hard to move, and the decisions were made, and those may be ones they come to regret. Um, you know, back in 2012, they were unla- unable to excuse me, able to unload Carl Crawford with part of the Gonzalez thing. And Gonzalez is a really good player. That that was the reason the Dodgers were willing to take on those other contracts. But uh, those things are hard to come by. I don't think they have a piece like Gonzalez to deal now to to help unload Pablo and Hanley. And it looks like that money's going to be in the books for quite some time. And maybe they've got to start thinking about changing positions for some of those guys. And somebody maybe needs to play first base. Well, you had the uh, the story to sort of go along with David Ortiz, the Player Tribune story at the beginning of the season, which was one of the best things I've ever read because I've never really understood how Ortiz has been treated and gotten away with the way he acts, uh, you know, with the media and, and in just the sense that 
A-Rod has always been treated the polar opposite of him, and they've really been uh, sort of the same player, the same type of player their entire careers. I know they used to be friends. I'm not sure if they are anymore, especially after what uh, Ortiz said yesterday about A-Rod and not really sure if he's still clean. But when you look at the two, and, and you know, they're sort of similar age. Uh, they've had similar production throughout this, their career with Ortiz um, getting established a, a little later than A-Rod did. But how is it that David Ortiz has sort of become the fan favorite and this lovable character across the country, and A-Rod, you know, he's still treated poor early and I don't think that'll ever change well I mean A-Rod's been caught certainly uh David only got caught once and A-Rod's been caught multiple times and that's a big difference and and uh I don't know A-Rod has been caught after telling us everything was cool that's got the palmero effect to it so uh you know people don't like that A-Rod's just he's naturally a pinata he was kind of a poser he's so handsome and talented had all the things and you know was kind of aloof earlier in his career maybe and and uh, it's just all come, you know, nobody likes the guy making the most money and you know, taking a picture of himself, kissing himself in a mirror and things like that. <laughs> and then, you know, the Veritech fight, he's just, he's a very handy uh, target and he's brought it on himself to a large degree. David, on the other hand, you know, Father Christmas, great to the people, great to the fans, good to little kids, old ladies. Um, and, you know, one of the great clutch performers in history, these, these massive home runs at timely fashion. Uh, so yeah, he's uh, he does he gets away with a lot. I mean, he's the only guy I've ever seen who can use the f bomb on international live television and have the chairman of the FCC come out applauding and say, "Oh, isn't that great for David?" You know, so <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yeah, basically, no matter what he does, you know, bitching about scoring decisions or you know showing up his manager, uh, it, it it's all okay. He can dog it in the field, dog it on the base paths, and people love and you know. Go pimp some more homers, uh, Big Poppy. We love you. <laughs> well, he said, uh, I really thought we were going to do better about this year and then said hopefully something happens this year and maybe he's just in denial that they're so far out of things that it, that it won't turn around and they've had, you know, the injury bug has hit them. The rotation's been horrible. But it seems like every year at spring training, Ortiz brings up his contract and when the team's doing bad, he starts to get a little nastier. Um, and, and that's another thing with him, not even the steroid allegations or the positive test of 2003 and the way he sort of got out of that, but the way he complains about you know what he makes and what he should make every spring training, and I know the team has the two vesting options left on him for the next two seasons. But I feel like you know at some point in in March 2016, we're going to start to hear about David Ortiz's contract again. I hope not. I mean, again, the man turns 40 years old in uh, November, and uh, enough's enough. And you know, in fairness to him, he's he's rolled that rhetoric back uh, since the last one was extended uh, a year ago, and we had we didn't hear it this year, which was nice. And uh, given his age, I would just, you know, and, you know, there's got to be some decline of the bat speed. Uh, and I just, uh, you don't count on a 40-year-old guy as the centerpiece of your lineup. It's just not a practical way to move forward. Yeah, and I feel like uh, in Boston, I always say how, you know, from, from living up there for a few years in college and the year after college and being in New York since then and growing up, you know, outside of New York, uh, it just seems like everyone always equates New York to the biggest stage in sports and the hardest place to play. But I always tell them it's Boston because with the Boston media, with only one team in each of the major sports to carry about, uh, or to care about, when things are going poorly, it's unlike anything I've ever seen before. And now with the Red Sox going the way they are and, and the flake gate coming up and the Bruins having a bad year and the Celtics still rebuilding um, things have sort of changed in the Boston sports landscape over the last couple of years and the negativity I feel like has never been stronger well I mean there's you know the Patriots won the Super Bowl and that's what's holding everybody up at this point in time but yeah uh, given the other teams you know there was a there was a really dry spell back in the 90s Louisville and all that and everything flipped around at the turn of the century and you know nine duck boat parades nine championships one in every sport in a six-year period 
but yeah, it's it's rolling back now a little bit, and the Patriot thing, the controversy around the Patriots is really dominating news up there. And but they still are expected to be, you know, they've been in four straight AFC championships, and uh, this this looks to me like they could go back for a fifth. And and when you know things get negative up there, and I feel like Boston fans get attached to their teams, their players, uh, in a way no, no one else really does. And for you, I know you've written in the past how you root for the story rather than the teams, and that you you know it doesn't matter to you ultimately if they win or lose. You're just there to do your job. And for right now, I mean, w- with the way things are going for the Red Sox, and and there's not really a baseball summer to be had in Boston, and the Deflategate dominating the headlines with Brady's impending suspension uh, looming over everyone's heads. I mean, does it make it harder to do your job when the teams are losing or is it the same thing as if they were winning there's stuff going on you know, the thing that boredom is the thing that you you really don't want and like the celtics right now are pretty boring there's not a lot of no one's mad at them there's not a big fold up or disappointment they're just it's just dull there's no star power nothing happened no controversy it's just that that that'll kill you if you get four teams like that you dry up we don't have that i mean the red sox are a clown show right now so there's plenty to Plenty of the keynote. You know, when you have great expectations and and chest thumping all over the place, and then you flop the way they do, that's that's good for business with us because you know people want to read about it and, and pitch about it and complain about it, and it just it, and then the whole deflategate thing is an absolute. You know, if you do a talk radio show, you can go on four hours every day and just talk about that. I mean, it's a topic. <laughs> yeah, the Olympics just fell through. That's a negative, but it, it was a lot of rhetoric. So uh, we're actually in pretty good shape for topics right now, and it's been a much more busy summer than, than usual for sports writers. And I feel like Boston sports fans, you know, they get annoyed with you because you tell it like it is and you're not there to, you know, sugarcoat everything and say everything's great when it's not. And, you know, does that get difficult because that's your fan base, those are your readers, or, or does that just, you know, do you just shrug that off when people get annoyed at the fact that you're not a fanboy and you're not going to call things as, as a homer? Yeah, I'm used to it by now. I mean, what, what have I? I've seen how the industry has evolved in its evolution. You know, the internet really makes people think that it's fans writing for fans. You know, <laughs> and uh, you know, and that's go back to the star with Bill Simmons and kind of creating that genre. And so, what you have is uh, young people, uh, probably under forty, who that's all they've ever known is reading other fans and websites and just uh, mutual stroking of the team. And and then they expect that in, in news outlets, and that's when it's not there, it's it's frowned upon and and uh, the immaturity comes out and you get these kinds of reactions. But I don't know. It, it, it is evolution. That's, what, that's sort of the way it's going. There's very little critical eye. Nobody wants any trouble anymore. And I understand that because it's, it's generally not rewarded. But, uh, you know, all I can do is do the job the way I came into it, and we'll keep doing it the same. And, and this is I'm very blessed to be in a region where there's so much interest to write about these teams because people really care about it. Well, you talk about doing the job the way you came in, and uh, you know, like you mentioned at the at sort of at the end of the '70s there, when you were you know fresh out of college doing uh, covering baseball, and I feel like you know with the way things have changed over the years, and, and not really over the 40 years, but even so in the last five or six years with the way uh, social media is taking over, people don't really want to or, or claim they don't have the time to read you know long form pieces or anything that's longer than 100, 140 characters or a paragraph on a blog. Uh, you know, how has that changed as you know as your career has developed, and I know you. You mentioned the evolution of things, but it seems like with the way attention spans going, I mean, at some point people are only going to want to read things that are 50 characters. Yeah, I think that, you know, you it, it can't be the old guy standing on your lawn, get off my lawn, all that jazz. I mean, I understand it. And when I call it evolution, it's, it's, it's a natural order of things, and I don't like the way it's going, but I also understand it, and you can't really fight it. I, I do believe there'll always be value for 
for good writing and good storytelling. And uh, and obviously, there's a lot of value in opinion these days. And just you'd rather have a little bit more informed opinion. And uh, you know, I would rather have read opinions of people who have left their house in the last like five years. You know, and who are out there, you know, talking to athletes and and getting stuff firsthand from the scouts. I mean, there's there's guys who have opinions that it means when Bob Ryan writes his opinion on the Celtics, it means something. You know. And an 18-year-old kid writing about it from his basement, what he thinks of the Celtics, I don't care what he thinks, you know. And I, I'd rather see that guy go, go work on his high school team or his college team, tell me something about them that that nobody knows, and uh, interact with the athletes and and, and go through that and kind of make your make your opinion a worthwhile reading. Yeah, and I think with with the interaction with the athletes, and you know whether it's the run-ins you've had with Ortiz or Schilling in the past, you know you're still there. You're the one that has to go in the clubhouse and face these people uh, day in and day out, rather than you know tweeting about them or writing something in 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 the sense that you'll never actually meet them in person. And you know how challenging is that for you to to be you know this type of writer and the style of writer that you are, which is sort of unlike anyone else in the Boston area, and then have to go you know talk to these people, interact with them face to face the day after or the day of something comes out that's written about them that they might uh you know not like so much i'm used to it i you know we're not here to make friends and nobody likes to be criticized i understand that and i i do feel it's important to be to be there the next day and particularly with david i always make sure to be around the next day because he's he's liable to ask where are you (laughs) and good for him because i mean if someone were you know critiquing me or being unfair i'd want to get in their face and have it out with them and i just think you got to give them that chance to do that so uh yeah i'm all for just being present if if you're going to you know knock somebody you want to be there but uh at the same time you know we're not there to you know kind of court favor or be their friend and and that's okay and that's uh, if somebody doesn't want to talk that's okay too we can do it without them well, when the book uh, Francona, the Red Sox years came out, uh, you know, I was so pumped up for that because I just, you know, wanted to find the ins and outs of what went down and what happened during his time there because it was, uh, you know, such a, a monumental time in the Red Sox history as well as the Yankees because of how the rivalry sort of changed for a few years there. And, uh, you know, you co-authored that with him. And um, I, I feel like when that book came out after his press conference, uh, he was let go. And right when the Yankees were starting their ALDS uh, against the Tigers in 2011, and, uh, you know, how long after that do you start talking to him uh, about doing that? Is that something that he leaves the press conference room and, and texts you and says, let's get it going? I sent him an email the night he was fired. And, uh, you know, we didn't have the greatest eight years because I was very active in those years. I was around a lot. And, and he's, even though they were winning 94 games a year, he was mad at me a lot. And I understand that. You know, he'd call you into the office and dress you down over some opinion he disagreed with. And that I, I always thought he didn't carry a grudge and that that was good. So when uh, when he got fired, you know, he didn't want to do a book, and he certainly didn't want to do a book with me. And and I kind of wore him down a little bit. I have a really good agent. My agent represents uh, Tom Berducci, who did the Joe Torre book, which was sort of the model for the book that, that Tito and I did. And um, and I think that got Tito's attention a little bit. And then, yeah, after some of the dirty dealing by the Red Sox and kicking him on the way out the door, he probably got a little more interested in getting his, his story out there. And... Uh, uh, and, and we did, and I, I was very happy with that. Uh, not everybody on Yawkey Way was, and and there's prices to be paid for that. But I, I thought it was uh, good to get the manager's story out, and he remains a very popular figure back in Boston. 
Yeah, I can't imagine going back there after you've written it and the Red Sox ownership and the front office has had a chance to read it. But with them, it's always been sort of a weird relationship, I feel like, between them and the fans because the fans uh, you know, feel like they don't care about the team or its history and they're rather just there to, to make the almighty dollar and they'll do that in any way they can. And sort of uh, the you know carnival or amusement park-like elements they've added to Fenway over the years and the way they've you know made a Red Sox game a social event rather than a baseball game. And now you see Larry Lucchino stepping down and a change there in the front office. I mean, do you feel like that's good for the long term for the Red Sox? Uh, you know, no. I think Lucina leaving is, is bad for the long term of the Red Sox. I, I always thought he was a stand-up guy and, and a you know great baseball resume, building Camden Yards and Petco Park and championships in Baltimore, World Series in San Diego, and then part of this group here. I thought he was uh, really the the strong, the strong person in the room at all times, and I had a lot of, you know, he was an angry, hard-charging boss. We know that. It gave a lot of pushback to everybody, and I think that's important. I thought it was good to have that kind of dissent and, and energy and urgency in the front office. I think they will miss that. Uh, and, and overall, these guys have been good owners. Let's face it. I mean, they rebuilt Fenway. They won three World Series. Um, they, they made the park a, a jewel. It's expensive for sure, but people love going there, and I understand that. And uh, they're not afraid to spend money. And you like that if you're a fan. You want owners to be those guys. So in most ways, they've been really spectacular owners. I would have to say that under any conditions. And I remember when it comes to John Henry uh, a few years ago when things were going badly before the 2013 Red Sox uh, World Championship. And there was rumors that he, he wasn't doing so well financially and then that he might sell the team. And then when he stormed into 98-5 and did that wild interview that afternoon, um, and then they won, so everything sort of was okay again. But now with you know what looks like back-to-back last-place seasons again, um, you know what, what happens with this ownership group? I mean, do you think they'll stick around and, and remain there? They've been there now for a decade and done more than any other Red Sox ownership had in the 100 years almost before. Uh, you know, What's your overall feel on this ownership group? I think they're they're there for. I mean, it's already been the long haul, 13 years, whatever. I, I don't see any inference of of selling or getting out. I think it's a lot of fun to own the Red Sox. You know, John Henry owns the Globe now. I mean, uh, he and his wife are really dug into the Boston life, and and having those two entities is a big deal. And I think Tom Warner likes the limelight, and and you know, owning the baseball team is fun. It's a very high profile team with fans around the globe, and I don't know what's more fun than doing that. So I, I expect these guys to be there. All right, Dan, I appreciate you coming on today to talk uh, Boston sports, the state of the uh, sports media up in Boston. Um, you know, th- thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you.